So we look to our text in Matthew chapter 23 and we look to the final verses, verses 37 to 39. And as we look to this, we are culminating uh, Matthew chapter 23. We reach its end uh, this morning and we look forward to what's to come in the next chapter, Matthew chapter 24. Uh, but I wanted to read to you this morning, uh, beginning at uh, verse 25 and all the way down to 39 to give us a sense of the immediate context. So we'll read Matthew chapter 23, verse 25, and then we'll read down to verse 39. Verse 25, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you clean the outside of the cup and of the dish, but inside they are full of robbery and self-indulgence. You blind Pharisee, first clean the inside of the cup so that the outside of it may become clean also. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you are like whitewashed tombs, which on the outside appear beautiful, but inside they are full of dead men's bones and all uncleanliness. So you too appear or outwardly appear righteous to men, but inwardly you are full of hypocrisy and lawlessness. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you build the tombs of the prophets and adorn the monuments of the righteous and say, if we had been living in the days of our fathers, we would not have been partners with them in shedding the blood of the prophets. So you testify against yourselves that you are sons of those who murdered the prophets. Fill up then the measure of the guilt of your fathers, you serpents, you brood of vipers. How will you escape the sentence of hell? Therefore, behold, I am sending you prophets and wise men and scribes. Some of them you will kill and crucify, and some of them you will scourge in your synagogues and persecute from city to city, so that upon you may fall the guilt of all the righteous blood shed on earth, from the blood of righteous Abel to the blood of Zechariah, the son of Berechiah, whom you murdered between the temple and the altar. Truly I say to you, all these things will come upon this generation. Jerusalem, Jerusalem, who kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to her. How often I wanted to gather your children together the way a hen gathers her chicks under her wings, and you were unwilling. Behold, your house is being left to you desolate. For I say to you, from now on you will not see me until you say, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. When we look to these verses this morning, we're looking at, in a sense, that which is tied to the previous eight curses that we have been studying over the course of Matthew chapter 23 from verses 13 to the point in which we look now. And this particular, these particular three verses that we're looking at this morning have everything to do with the curses that have come before. But the difference is, that they are somewhat of the indictment being handed out as they summarize all the curses. And they also summarize the responses that the religious order and the religious establishment had in such a way that necessitated not only the curses, but they necessitated eternal judgment. Verses 37 to 39 have a historical feature to them because Jesus points to a time in the history of Israel a time in which they had killed all of those who were sent to them, many of those who were sent to them, prophets, wise men, scribes, but it also looks to the future. It looks to the future in light of what's said in the previous context where he says in verse 34, I'm sending you prophets and wise men and scribes. Some of them you will kill and crucify. And some of them you will scourge in your synagogues and persecute from city to city. And we must not be so rigid as we look to this text so as to think that if the Pharisees were not the ones committing these atrocities, then they themselves are not the ones mentioned. What Jesus is talking about as he revealed in other parts of this particular context is how these men have made proselytes. And so they are just as guilty for what their proselytes do as if they had done it themselves. And they're just as guilty as what their fathers had done before them because of who they are. And it would be the same guilt as though they had done that themselves. And it's not as we have been studying because of generational guilt in a vacuum. It's because just like their ancestors were murderers, they are murderers. 
And just like they are murderers, the people who come after them will also be murderers. And so we know them in the form, given the fact that we have the New Testament epistles and the other New Testament writings in front of us, we know that they raised up a generation of Judaizers that went about persecuting the apostles and went about trying to silence the testimony of Christ as it was going forward uh, from the ends of the earth. And we look even in, as we've been studying Acts in our time in Bible study, how that persecution has certainly come out in various ways. Uh, to the point where some of the apostles will be, most of the apostles will be killed. All of them at, at some points have been mistreated. And a few of them would be jailed. And so you have these men who are guilty of murder. And yet you also have those whom Jesus sent. That Jesus was sending individuals to testify to the truth among the, Israel, uh, the Israelites and the people of Israel. And we know that God had sent people forward in the form of the prophets to the people of Israel, to the nation, in order to proclaim the excellencies of Yahweh. And we know that the reception of that testimony was one that was met with rebellion, obstinance, anger, rage, murder. And we know that there was this guilt that was heaped upon the heads of the people who would not listen in such a way that what was visited upon them was the exile, captivity, judgment. And just when we think that the nation would go extinct, that the end of Malachi, what is revealed before the 400 years of silence, of prophetic silence, where no prophecy went forward from heaven itself, the promise was at the end of Malachi, the sending of the Son. The Son who would come and bear the sins of the elect. And that He would come and testify to Himself as being the Messiah. And there would be a forerunner before Him, John the Baptist, who would come. But the climate to which they came was one in which their voices were certainly not heard. And so there was this constant, ongoing rebellion that you could study even uh, till this uh, Till this day, you could study throughout the Old Testament and see that this rebellion is continuous, it's ongoing. And it certainly does culminate in the killing of the son himself, but it also continues beyond that. That there are those who want to stamp out the very testimony of Christ as it has been revealed in Scripture. And that doesn't end with the crucifixion and resurrection of our Lord because the testimony of the proclamation hasn't ended at the crucifixion and resurrection of our Lord. But you see a merciful father who wants to gather to himself a people. He wants to gather to himself a people, not because there's anything special about them, not because they have earned his favor, but because he's granting them mercy, because he wants to be merciful to a people. And instead of receiving the mercy that he extends to them, they continue to rebel against that up to the very point of the text that we're seeing here where there was a whole religious system erected in order to turn people away from God. But he had given them wise men. He had given them prophets, scribes, adoption as sons, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the temple service, and the promises. And he also gave them their genealogy. An ancestry that they can trace. He gave them a sense in which they could identify with the purposes of God through the tribes. He gave them everything. And I'll tell you this. He gave them all of these things leading to the Holy One. He even gave them the Messiah. And the language with which you heard me say what I said is what Paul says about them in Romans chapter 9, specifically verse 4. That he gives them all these gifts so that they can identify the one who gave it. But most of all, he gave them Jesus, sinless, born of a virgin woman, sent to be their redeemer and to save them from their sins. And yet God was intentional. God intentionally and purposefully made his presence among them. He gave them life. He gave them rulers who were merciful to them. 
And yet he even chastised them by permitting rulers who would not, uh, who would not necessarily, uh, he chastised them by permitting rulers who would necessarily point them to their idolatry and test their faithfulness to Yahweh, and they would not be without excuse. And most of all, he gave them himself. And you see that in the verses that we'll be looking at briefly this morning, that he gave them himself. He gave them his only begotten son. And we know that because when Jesus is announced at the incarnation, he's known as God with us. He will be Emmanuel. So he gave them his only begotten son. That's the language of the Apostle John. As his testimony concerning Christ agrees with all the other writers and all the other apostles. And the son had a purpose. The reason the son came to them and the reason God wanted to gather the people to himself was not simply kingship, but it was to be a redeemer. Yes, it included kingship. Yes, it included being joined to one who is certainly Christ himself, a prophet. But in all those things, it was also because they needed a redeemer. They needed someone to save them from their sins because they were headed for the eternal judgment. And so God sent his son to be a sacrifice, a substitute, to atone for the sins of the people. But in each case, and what I'm giving you now is why we have arrived to the point where we are in verse 37. Why the lamentation? Because in each case throughout the history of Israel, their rejection, their disobedience, and their obstinacy was systemic. It was ongoing. It was the foundation of their entire disposition toward God. And yet there were some who were faithful and demonstrated that faithfulness. And the sacrifices were a way to do so. The functions and worship of, of the temple. But in their history, they were corrupt. And we see the height of this corruption and why it was necessary to even curse them. But they were corrupt because the very fabric of their being was corrupted. Sin corrupted them. And sin, specifically the sin of apostasy, the sin of unbelief, it corrupted their understanding of the law and the prophets. If you want to see a people who are overtaken by sin, you can see where that takes place and how they deal with the word of God. And how they respond to the word of God. And what the word of God uh, does to them in terms of whether it challenges them to live a life that is holy. Or infuriates them to rebel even more so against God. And this was the case of the people of Israel. That they were corrupted. They were corrupted in their understanding of the law and the prophets. And instead of looking to the law to reveal their sin and need for salvation. Instead of doing those things, they tried to keep the law as a means of upholding their self-righteousness. Instead of regarding the temple and its practices as symbols of obedience and faithfulness to Yahweh, they hijacked the temple. And what they did is they raised up their own false prophets. And they tasked the scribes with adding the traditions of men to the word of God. So this became something of a very sophisticated operation by the time we reach verse 37. And that's what I'm describing to you is what is described in the curses. That this was a people who did what they did. And they did so in the very face of God in order to slander him. In order to rebel against him openly and demonstrate their hatred. They turned the temple into a religion of greed, gain, and murder. And I don't think it's taken too far when we say that, because look where we are in the text. That to this point, they want to kill the Messiah himself. It shows you the substance of their rebellion. It also shows you that rebellion against God has its consequences. It not only leads to deception, people preach against deception, and rightfully so. But there are effects upon individuals, societies, 
in their very disposition toward God in such a way that they aim to tear down what belongs to him. That's the effect. That's the effect of unbelief. That's why we're armed with the word of God. That's why the gospel is as glorious as it is. And that's why we proclaim it. Because there's no way to stave off apostasy outside of divine weapons. Outside of the truth concerning who God is, what he has come to testify to, and why man must in light of all that repent and trust in him alone or be condemned forever into hell. And this was the plight of Israel. And Israel did so under very strong religious auspices and pretenses. Because instead of tasking the scribes with pointing people to the old covenant so as to await the coming of Messiah and thus recognize him as their long-awaited king, they killed the prophets who testified. And all of this had the effect of rejecting God the Father, the God of Israel, Yahweh, and despising His Son, and ultimately plotting to kill the one who was sent to them. And so our text begins with a lamentation, a cry, a prophetic cry, a prophetic plea. But it also demonstrates in the sense in which the judgment aspect is tied to it, a place from which man cannot return if he doesn't repent. But what we see in verses 37 to 39 is the culmination of hundreds of years, hundreds of years, where God was pleading with Israel to turn from their wicked ways and follow him and his commandments. And what you're seeing in Christ in verse 37 is sorrow. You do see sorrow. He was a man of sorrows. And he wasn't sorrowful about some event that was taking place in and of itself. He wasn't sorrowful because he was going to be crucified. Because no one took his life from him, he laid it down. He was sorrowful because the people's rebellion, in a sense, as which we look to even the fact that this is a, dec a divine decree, but the people's rebellion necessitated it. The fact that, yes, he had to die in the and the Father's pleased to crush him. And Christ is equally as pleased to go and be the substitute. But in that sense, that the cry of Christ in John 17 to let the cup pass from him could not be answered in a way where it would pass from him. Because all of this was necessary. What troubled him was the sins of the people. Not the crucifixion in and of itself. But that the people were so far gone from the love of the Father. From salvation in Him. That they had to be destroyed, many of them. And so there's a lamentation. And the reason that takes place is because after unrepentance. And after one is sorrowful that a people or a nation will not repent, then what then takes place is judgment. If people will not repent, there is judgment. The exile did not provide the full-scale repentance of the nation. The forerunner, John the Baptist, did not persuade the nation. And the Messiah had, by exposing their sins, only inflamed their hatred. And it's not because God and his weapons failed. It's not because somehow there was a failure on the planning of God to initiate an illicit repentance in their hearts. The plan is divine. The plan is perfect. The issue is that the people's hearts were full of sin, filled with sin. And not only that, it was filled with hypocrisy. So the problem was them. That when Jesus came in the fullness of time, he came to a nation that was inhabited by demons. How do we know that? Because he spent a large portion of his ministry casting demons out. 
And Satan then ruled their religious system. He was their father. They traded the loving hand of God as their father for the destructive, destroying hand of Satan as their father. And so what was left? Well, the only thing left was to weep for them. It was to weep for them because what was going to happen was the whole system had to be brought down. But first, before that was to take place, before all the things that lay in front of us from the vantage point of our text is to be initiated, Jesus Christ, one who is prophet, priest, and king, shows us something prophetically. He laments over Israel. He mourned over their disobedience and coming judgment. And he's not the first. For many of the prophets in the Old Testament cried over Israel. Jeremiah, the weeping prophet. Isaiah, Ezekiel. The list goes on and on. Amos, Habakkuk. It goes on and on and on as to all these prophets who cried over Israel. Jonah. So it had to come down. And he mourned over them. Because he knew not only the severity of it as the ultimate judge, but he also knew the longevity of their judgment, eternity. And so when we stare out from the vantage point of the Lord's church into a society today, it should cause us to weep. It shouldn't cause a rage in us that wants to reform society. It should cause great weeping. Because what will take place if they do not hear our testimony? If they do not hear the proclamation of God's word and God's truth, what will happen is not the destruction of statues, it will be the destruction of them. That they will be brought down, they will be brought low. And so we are not prophets, but our prophetic cry is in line with the scripture because the scripture presents prophecy. And so we, when we tell men to repent, we're telling them something about their present selves in light of what took place in the past, but also we're looking ahead to the very so near future that Christ is coming again to judge. And so his weeping for them is not because he will excuse them in their sins. It's not some therapeutic psychological agreement or some pity session. It's that Christ knows what will come then is he has to crush them under his feet. And it's not simply to crush them as one vanquishes an enemy and then takes them captive. It's to crush them and then render them into the horrors and horrific nature of eternal punishment in hell. And so that's why he says what he says as we begin to look in verse 37. But we look first to where he addresses what he does. He first addresses the epicenter, the focal point. The headquarters of all their wickedness. The place that was supposed to be the place given to them as a reflection of their joint, uh, being joined to the very presence of who God is. And to worship Him and to serve Him and to proclaim Him and love Him. And honor Him before all the Gentile nations so that the Gentile nations would come face to face with the need to be redeemed by the God of Israel. But he addresses them where they are. And it shows you what they've become in the way he addresses them. Because he starts out by crying out to them by their location, Jerusalem. He could have started by naming people. But he goes to the very place in which they have established their apostasy. And have flourished in their apostasy. Jerusalem, Jerusalem. And the Jerusalem he speaks of is not the one that's given to peace. It's not the one that is a Jerusalem that has a love for the Holy One of Israel, for the Messiah. The Jerusalem he's addressing is the one who kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to her. So I'll tell you this hour, as you look to the world in front of you, there are two Jerusalems. There's the Jerusalem from above, 
the one that will hail the Messiah, that will worship him, that will honor him. And then there's the one this hour that may bear the name that despises him. The one that will be the seat of the Antichrist and the allegiance of the world will be pledged to him. So there are two Jerusalems. And so you have to discern. You have to discern whether someone is bringing to you a biblical dispensationalism or Zionism. Because one is on the political plane with all the nations in the worlds around in the world around it and the ideologies and the governments. And then there's one that's concerned with the divine redemptive plan of God. And so Jesus doesn't simply use Jerusalem in a very standard way. He speaks of a Jerusalem that's been hijacked. A Jerusalem that does not love the Messiah. That has not kissed the son and paid homage to him. But a Jerusalem that has a form of godliness and yet denies its power. Because this Jerusalem to which he's referring had a history. They had a history of murder and unrighteous judgment. And they killed the prophets and stoned those who had been sent to them. And we'll look to that, but as you recognize from what has been said, even as we've been studying Matthew, that Matthew is a gospel of distinctions. And so I tell you that, that even in the way in which the modern world itself uses the terms they use, we have to provide the distinctions for them. Because sin has devastated their ability to think. So you have people claiming that X, Y, and Z is the church. But we have to provide the distinction as to what's the true church. You have people hailing peace for Israel and peace for Jerusalem. But we have to provide the distinction as to who is the true Israel. Who is the true Jerusalem. People have no problem using general terms that everyone recognizes because that's one way to escape persecution. But when you begin to make distinctions as Jesus had, for he says here, he doesn't simply say Jerusalem. He doesn't simply say, well, some of you. He speaks of a Jerusalem, and if all of them in that particular place are guilty of what he says, then that's where they belong. Because he says, who kills the prophets and stone those who are sent to her. It is to be literally joined to the holiness of God to provide distinctions, divine distinctions. Male and female. The world and the true church. The true church versus the apostate church. Etc, etc. What Satan is doing this hour, as he has in every hour is trying to eliminate distinctions so that you can find yourself joined to the general, the unspecific. That if Jesus had simply said Jerusalem and didn't offer any warnings, then Jerusalem would think that they were okay. But he's saying the Jerusalem that I'm speaking to now the one in the age in which I'm, I'm proclaiming what I'm proclaiming and lamenting over, they are guilty of these things. Thus, they are under judgment. And I'm here to tell you it's the same in the nation in which we live and in the nation of Israel today. That if they have not repented and trusted in the Messiah, the Lord Jesus Christ, then they are guilty before a holy God. Because that's what he demands. He demands repentance on those grounds. But the idea here is that they have continuously killed the prophets. And they've continually executed those prophets by stoning them. And by stoning those who were sent to them. This is what they had done. The prophets and others were sent to them. An action that would be considered completed with ongoing results. Because prophets and righteous men were indeed sent to Israel. Because Israel was the epicenter of all worship. Jerusalem. Specifically. The place of the temple. 
And they were continuously murdered. Righteous men sent to this place and being murdered. Not only ignored. Not only did people mock them, but they killed them. And they persecuted them. They pursued them with the intention to do murder because of their unrighteousness. And because there was a continuous hatred and unrepentant heart till, uh, toward God. He said, how often I wanted to gather your children together. The way a hen gathers her chicks under her wings and you were unwilling. Here Jesus is not saying that the people who are gathered together are his children. He's saying it's their children that he wanted to gather to himself. And had they come, they would in fact be his children. But he wanted to gather the generations of Israel together in order that they may worship the God of Israel. And in order that they may not be those who are judged according to their sins, but that they would be freed according to the righteousness of God. But they turned all those things in their self-righteousness against God himself. Now you see the futility, the great error, and them mocking Jesus for things like not keeping the Sabbath. When the Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. And so they tried to hold Jesus to standards that they erected as a means of their own self-righteousness. And so what Jesus did, he went to their house and he judged their house. It says in verse 38, behold, your house is being left to you desolate. This was their house. And one's home is a place of comfort. One's home is a place of care, intimacy, prosperity. And it would be laid to waste. Because to be desolate, as it's used here, is not simply to be cleaned out. But it would be rendered useless, a condemned property. It would be as deserted, as barren, and as abandoned as their souls were. And it would be essentially rendered as a wilderness. Some might say, well, there is still today... A people inhabiting Jerusalem. So in that case, they would render what is said to be false or misguided. But that's not a mark of whether this is true or not. Because just as some are comfortable in places today that oppose Jesus Christ, it doesn't mean that they're not under judgment. It doesn't mean that their places are not rendered desolate. Because for a place to be desolate, it need not have the appearance of being laid to waste. Listen to this. It need not have that appearance. It simply can be a wasteland full of spiritually dead men and women. So it doesn't have to have the absence of people. It only has to be inhabited by people who are dead. That's a wasteland. One might say if you look to the desert... That the desert is what it is, not because things don't grow, but because there's not a lot of useful things that grow in the desert. There aren't things fit for use. So the question is never, is the place still standing? But rather, are the people alive to God? And yet with Israel, the future judgment specifically for them would be evident. It would be evident because not only would there be a conquest over the land by the Roman Empire in A.D. 70, which is about 40 years in the future from the vantage point of this text. But there would also be the end times, eschatological judgment. And that's prophesied literally in the verses that follow in chapter 24 and beyond in our text. And so the judgment was fixed. They could not escape it. It had a certain near component, but it also had a future component. And the Lord wanted to gather them together. He wanted to gather them 
God himself, the way a hen gathers her chicks under her wings. And he wanted to do so, so that they could be recipients of divine mercy and grace and not judgment. And so how did he attempt to do this? How did he attempt to gather them? Well, we talked about the plight of Israel in terms of what he provided to them. But most of all, we spoke about the Lord himself. The Lord himself coming down from heaven. God the Son, the second person of the divine trinity. Distinct in essence, or I'm sorry, distinct in person, one in essence, one in being. Came down from heaven during the incarnation and took upon himself flesh. But he did so to gather their children to himself. And the imagery here shows a motherly care. It shows that even in this lamentation, one that eventually leads to judgment, that there's a care here. It's an affection beyond simple testimony, but a testimony filled with compassion. That this is all he did to them and for them so that they might follow him. It was an appeal to the people to come to the only hedge of protection provided to them. Not by what they've done to earn it, but by the mercy and grace of God to give it to them. So there they stood on the precipice of the eternal flames, and God reached out to them to gather them under his wings. And here we see the insanity of sin and unbelief. Because that is what sin does to an individual. Sin is insanity. It's insanity. It's to rush headlong into judgment. Knowing it's there. Being deceived about when it will come. But knowing it's there because eternity is written on the heart of every man. But we see the height of sin's deception and irrationality. You were unwilling. You were unwilling. But this also puts an end to free will. Some might think it upholds it. It doesn't uphold it. They chose according to their nature. They were dead, so they chose to follow judgment. They chose to follow Satan. They were murderers, so by nature, they wanted to be joined to the one who was like them. Their unwillingness had nothing to do with the fact that they had a choice to do that which was righteous in and of themselves. Why? Because even beforehand it says that God wanted to gather them. I wanted to gather your children together. They couldn't gather themselves in and of themselves. God had to gather them. And in gathering them, he would have, he would have granted to them eternal life. But they were unwilling. So the will is constrained. The will is constrained to choose according to its nature. And this was true of obstinate and stubborn Israel. Because the sons of Israel were unwilling to kiss the son himself. They were unwilling to kneel at his feet and worship him in saving faith. And I have news for those who think that there's some kind of free will involved. As if the will is autonomous. They could not do so because of their sins. They were unwilling to abandon their sins. That's not a picture of free will. That's a picture of an enslaved will. Some might look at this and say, well, how come God couldn't overcome them? Oh, he certainly could. But the goal of redemptive history and the goal of the cross and the goal of salvation is not to save every single individual. Because the cross has two components to it, mercy and judgment. And so there are some whom God will grant mercy and many whom God will grant judgment. You were unwilling. They were unwilling to be rescued from both temporal destruction and more importantly, eternal flames. And so they were under judgment. 
Behold. It's a term to call people to recognize something with great emphasis. Behold. Your house is being left to you desolate. Because that's all that's left. When someone will not repent, when they will not trust in the Messiah, when they will not turn and love and do homage and kiss the Son, and to honor the triune Godhead, when they will not do that, the only thing that's left for them is judgment. But it's always what sinful man chooses, which is why there had to be a provision made at the cross. And it shows you that even in this lamentation, that there's nothing Israel could do to bring themselves to a saving knowledge of God and to be reconciled to God in and of themselves. Because we know that they were given all the means to be able to do so if one could do so. That the very presence of God indwelled the temple among them. That didn't stop them from sinning against Him. What stopped them from sinning was the power of God and salvation. And it didn't necessarily stop them from sinning in the sense of it was eradicated. But the frequency of their sins diminished and the provision of the sacrificial system was made for them. To demonstrate their faithfulness. To demonstrate that they were contrite over their sins. That the law was given to them to point them in the direction of their own sin for the purpose of having them recognize their own redemption. It was to prevent them from being cut off. But in their sinful nature, they chose what was according to their nature. And this is the position of man this very hour. We see it playing out in our society. We see that man can only choose according to his nature. We look around and say, why are people doing what they do today? Why do people act this way? Why do people conduct themselves in the way that they are? Because they're doing so according to their nature. They're not born again. That doesn't make an excuse for them to continue. It's a plea for them to repent. But man being a sinner in need of salvation in need of redemption, would always choose sin, if not for God's electing grace, mercy, and love in Christ. And such were some of you. It's the same for us all. Your hours of rebellion against God would still be there. Your flagrant disobedience toward Him would still be there, if not before the salvation and the power of God in salvation that He grants through Christ. But here, what is sad is the generation before us in this text, or generations before us, were under a curse. They were under a curse. And the only means of salvation for them, since they rejected it, it was cut off. To them, what we see in this lamentation as Jesus says what He says, it's a plea. But the plea is no longer in a sense to repent. The plea is one of sorrow for those who would not repent. Because they would bear the full wrath of God against them for their rebellion, for their disobedience, and for their unbelief. And this is what we see here. For some men rush headlong into the flames. Some do. Others believe that they are exempt from God's wrath because there is no intimate or personal displays of it against them at the present hour. But the truth is, unbelief is both the cause and consequences of God's wrath upon the believer. It's the cause and the consequence. An unbeliever is where they are in relation to God and being one who is not reconciled to Him, alienated from Him due to their unbelief. And they will be judged for that unbelief. And yes, indeed, Christ by His cross work overcomes unbelief. But the Bible does not teach universalism. 
It's not God's plan to overcome the unbelief of every individual who does not believe. His plan is to judge those who are on the broad road and to save those who are on the narrow road. What he says in verse 39 leads to what is said in chapter 24, where he says, For I say to you, after rendering judgment to them, for I say to you from now on, you will not see me until you say, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. What does this mean? They would see him. They would see him again. But not in worship. It would not be in worship. It would not be for them as worshipers. And there are some among the Pharisees and among the scribes who would certainly repent. This is not who Jesus is addressing here. Because what he's talking about is the finality. The end of days. Look with me, if you will, to Psalm 118, verse 26. Because in that psalm is where what is said appears. We'll start with verse 19. Open to me the gates of righteousness. I shall enter through them. I shall give thanks to the Lord. This is the gate of the Lord. The righteous will enter through it. I shall give thanks to you, for you have answered me, and you have become my salvation. The stone which the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone. This is the Lord's doing. It is marvelous in our eyes. This is the day which the Lord has made. Let us rejoice and be glad in it. O Lord, do save, we beseech you. O Lord, we beseech you, do send prosperity. Look at this. Blessed is the one who comes in the name of the Lord. We have blessed you from the house of the Lord. In what way will they say this? Well, we know that they're under judgment. But we know that they will witness others saying this to him. That their eyes will behold those who say, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. They will not see him unto eternal life, so they will see Him as others see Him. But it also points to the fact of this, that every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. He would not be revealed to them by their repentance, but He would be revealed by His judgment. But in either case, they would acknowledge Him as the Messiah, they would acknowledge him. Just as others to this point had already received him as such by his power and by his spirit. This generation to whom he's speaking. There would be among them, even among them, some who will acknowledge Jesus as the Messiah and be saved. Jesus was not ending the nation of Israel as an elect nation on a wide and wholesale scale. What he was doing was creating a distinction among the people. That there would be an elect people even among them. Whom Paul speaks about in verses, uh, in the chapters Romans chapter 9 through 11. That there would be some who would undergo partial hardening. And some who would undergo judicial hardening. And so Jesus is referring to those who would undergo the partial hardening. In the sense in which many would see him among them, but few would repent. And so this generation to whom Christ was speaking fought against him to their own destruction. But there would be others, even at the end of the age especially the 12 tribes that whom Jesus will deal with during the tribulation, the 144,000, they would embrace him. The elect Israel would embrace him. And it's why Paul made the distinction that he made in his epistles, especially in Romans, that not all Israel is Israel. Because there's an Israel from above 
And then there's a fleshly Israel. And so what Jesus is saying here is that there are some who will remain under the curse. And then there will be some who will be freed from the curse. And we have to understand what is said from the vantage point of the text. That he has yet to go to the cross. When he goes to the cross, it will be plain who belongs to him from the nation and who despises him from the nation. But we know that there is coming a time where the people, Jew and Gentile, will recognize him. We know that there is a time coming when Jesus will appear to his people, his people Israel, his elect people. And the elect will recognize him as the Messiah. And they will confess him as such. And they will worship him as such. We know that he's going to return to the world at large. And there will be Gentiles who recognize him as such. And worship him as such. But we also know that there's an element at large who will recognize him in judgment. That they will see him for who he is. And they will bow before him. But it will be too late for eternal life. The next time that we're together we will look at. The many signs that Jesus points to as it relates to his return. And it's fitting that he does so right after the context that we've been studying this morning. There's one final verse that I do want to look at before we close our time. That what Jesus refers to in verse 39 points to what takes place in chapter 21 of Matthew's gospel. It says in verse 8, we'll look at first, most of the crowd spread their coats in the road and others were cutting branches from the trees and spreading them in the road. The crowds going ahead of them and those who followed were shouting, Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. When he entered Jerusalem, all the city was stirred saying, who is this? And the crowds were saying, this is the prophet Jesus from Nazareth in Galilee. That does not speak of a full-scale repentance of the nation. And we can look no further than the events that follow. That there will be a cleansing of the temple. Because the temple is overrun with wickedness. And it is the same way that we will approach not only the verse that we've studied in verse 39, but also Matthew chapter 24. Let's pray. Thank you.